Greetings and welcome back to Luke, Luke chapter 16, on what is this lovely Monday morning. Well, I'm hoping it's a lovely Monday morning. I have no idea if it actually is. Hey, but let's get your mind thinking about something maybe exciting outside of your Monday morning routines or Monday afternoon routines for that matter. What do you want for Christmas? Truthfully, what is it that you would like to have for Christmas? Maybe you'd like to have a new car. Oh, that'd be nice, right? Brand new home. Maybe it's much simpler than that. Maybe you'd like to have all the kids gathered together under one roof. There's a lot of things that you could probably think of if you thought of it long enough. If someone was to come to you and say, I'm going to give you something for Christmas, whatever it is that you want, one thing. It can be small, it can be big. What would you ask for? Oh, there's a lot of things that we could ask for. That's actually what we're going to talk about. Things. Stuff. All that we have, God gives to us, right? Uh, That's what the bulk of this chapter 16 is about. This parable of the dishonest manager, where usually you have a, a good stewardship sermon or conversation that stems from this chapter. And we certainly will look at it from that perspective. But I'm going to kind of show my cards here. I'm going to lay it all out. This parable is not an easy parable. This is a parable that really you can't find a lot of consistent agreement on how to interpret it. There's a lot of interesting ways you could go with it. And don't worry, we're not going to explore all those ways. No, Um, that would be really boring for you guys. I, I am sure of that. Uh, But we're going to talk a little bit maybe about some of the applications, really the main application that I think we should go with. And um, I think it's a good one. I think it's close. And it's not my own, no doubt about that. But I think it's one that, that we can look at, especially when we are in this time of Advent what we are anticipating uh, Jesus returning. So assuming that you've read it, and I hope that you have, I would like to kind of quickly summarize what this parable is about since it is so confusing. Uh, Basically, there's an individual who was a manager. He was in charge of the owner's estate. Now, other individuals would rent out land and the like, and uh, at a certain point in time, the manager would come and collect what was due. And of course, as some of you know, since you've come from farming families, whatever uh, was expected was a portion of the, the crop. So in this case, there was some um, one individual owed 100 measures of wheat, while there was another individual that uh, owed some oil, and he was coming to collect it. Uh, The problem is this particular manager wasn't either honest or perhaps he just wasn't good at his job, but he found out that uh, he's about ready to get fired. The master wants his job. So before the master gets there, he wants to settle some accounts and maybe make friends who will help him uh, once he loses his job because he doesn't want to be a beggar, doesn't want to dig ditches. He wants there to be some... uh, some people that will be friends with him to maybe help him when he's out of a job. So he tells these individuals that have wheat and oil, take your bill and, and trim it down. If you owe 100, okay, make it 80. You who owe uh, 100 of the oil, okay, well, you can take that. And uh, how about we'll make that, oh, we'll say 50, all right? So th- this is going to be great for those who owe money. They're going to think, ooh, great, my bill is in half. This is awesome. And uh, it kind of makes you wonder, though, from the perspective of the master, what is he going to say 
when he comes. And what's crazy about this parable when you're reading it is why in the world would anybody act like this? I mean, we wouldn't if we found out there was a dishonest manager in charge of his stuff. But listen to what uh, the owner says of the manager. It says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So commended. Who would commend an individual for doing this? I think most people would say, if I found out this happened, I would fire the individual on the spot, take him to court for doing this until I got all of my money. See, this actually puts the manager or the owner, I'm sorry, in a really bad spot because he either has to honor what the manager says or go back on the manager's word who's supposed to be his employee. And then that makes him look bad for hiring somebody that wasn't giving the right prices. So I really like what Arthur just uh, says in his commentary, and he takes it from Kent Bailey, uh, as they talk a little bit about what this actually means. To really see this parable work and to make this realistic. Now, you have to understand that while this parable is being spoken, Jesus is not saying that people should steal. That's really not the part that we should dwell on. What we really need to do is look at the way that the manager, as well as those who are the tenants, the way that they view the owner. Uh, as Arthur A. just says in his commentary, you really have to see that these individuals are viewing the master, the owner, as an individual who must be full of mercy. They must know that in some way, shape, or form, this individual has these kind of characteristics where he's not a jerk, so to speak. Um, he's not one who's angry. He's not one to, to get revenge or, or a money-hungry kind of individual. But this is probably someone who is in the past has shown mercy, has shown compassion, has shown grace. And so they're understanding that as they act this way, that the owner probably isn't going to act out of his character. And that's certainly how the manager is going to have to respond, right? I'm going to do all of this and hope that I make friends. In the meantime, I'm going to assume that the owner isn't going to take me to court, but he's actually going to have mercy on me. In the same way for the tenants, why would they assume that it was okay to all of a sudden cut the bill in half or at least a fraction of the cost? There must be something that's going on right now that's allowing for this individual who is the manager to say quickly, just give me what you can and, and we'll call it square. It must mean that the person in the past, the owner has operated this way. They're operating as if the owner is filled with mercy. Now, I don't know if this is completely accurate, the best way to interpret uh, this particular parable. But what I think we can understand from this and take from it, though, is that as merciful as this owner may be, God is much more so. Especially when we talk about stewardship, when we talk about the things that God has blessed us with, we know that he's not this angry, wrathful God who's looking to zap us because we didn't use our stuff maybe correctly or in the best way. Now, does he want us to be good stewards? Sure. But what we see 
is that it's even better than just using it the correct way. He actually wants us to splurge, to spend on other people. He wants us to give and give freely of the things that he has blessed us with so that other people might be blessed also. I think that's a neat way of looking at this. And we can look at it this way because we know that our God is going to continue to provide for us. We know that we could never outgive God. And you could see Malachi chapter 3 uh, to kind of talk about that as we really see uh, the writer say, hey, look, put God to the test. Try to outgive him. You don't see that very many places in the Bible, but it says it there. And I think this is a worthy, a word of encouragement for us to give, to be good stewards, because we know who our God is. We know his very nature is to be a merciful God. So we don't look to steal. We don't look to manipulate, but we can give. We can give freely knowing that God is going to continue to freely give to us. And I really think that's a good way of approaching this particular parable, especially as we are getting uh, closer to the end of the book, as we see what Jesus is going to do for us and God giving in such an amazing way. He gives his son to shed his blood for us. That is much more merciful than any owner that we'd ever heard of, right? That's the way our God is. Now, we also need to understand that when Jesus is saying this, he is saying this to the disciples, but he knows who's listening in. The Pharisees. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. But of course, Jesus has a response for them. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. See, they might be talking a good game, but they're not living it. Really, they're heaping burdens and laws and everybody else, but in their own heart, they're loving money more than God. They're breaking that first commandment. But Jesus says, hey, guess what? The law and the prophets, they've always been good. They've always been around. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not looking to get rid of the law. I'm actually fulfilling it. Jesus is doing what the law has actually been saying all along. He's not trying to put extra parameters around it, but he's the one that's actually living it out. And the Pharisees aren't. I mean, this is his challenge. I mean, these are fighting words. And I said this a few chapters ago, that things are really going to heat up between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is what's going to cause them to be absolutely angry because he is challenging the establishment. He's taking and claiming the authority because, of course, the authority is his. He's the son of God. All right, we are going to move on here. We are going to move on to the rich man and Lazarus. Again, another well-known story. I'm not going to say parable because it doesn't actually say that it's a parable, but we certainly can call it a story. Um, you know, and there's some different ways that we can talk about this particular thing. I think we should be careful though uh, in how we interpret this and how we understand this particular text. See, a lot of people look at this text, they read it and they think, okay, good, this is what heaven is going to be like. Uh, we have all the rich people 
uh, who are in hell and all the poor people who are in heaven will be able to see and talk to them. They'll be able to talk to us. And so, you know, when we imagine heaven, that's what heaven's going to be like. And I don't really think that's how we should interpret this text. Uh, the, the focus of this is not about what heaven is going to be like. Really, the focus of this, the reason why Jesus is teaching this particular text is because of the response that the Pharisees are having to his particular teaching. And I'll show you what I mean when we get to the end of the, the story here. In the story, we have this rich man who's dressed really well, purple and fine linen, right? beautiful, feasting sumptuously. So wasting, in other words, someone that's eating all the time. Imagine Thanksgiving, having Thanksgiving every single day, right? Whew. Talk about feeling like a glutton, but this guy's doing this, right? And really at this point, you should probably be thinking in the back of your mind, uh, this is kind of a Pharisee way of living. Not that they feast sumptuously, but they're wealthy. They dress well, they live well. But then there's another character who goes by the name of Lazarus, who really doesn't have anything. Um, he longs uh, to eat what the rich man is eating. He desires to be fed. And moreover, he lets the dogs lick his sores, right? I mean, this is, this is bad. And finally, they both die. Uh, the one individual who's rich, boom, he goes to hell, right? He's in Hades. Uh, the one that's poor, he goes to heaven. And so what we're supposed to see here is not, and I repeat this, I know I said it earlier, it's not that those who are rich automatically go to hell and those who are poor go to heaven, right? That, that's not really what this is about. We have the rest of scripture that we have to take into account. For instance, what does Jesus say? The love of money is the root of all evil. And I think we can understand that, right? Because there are a lot of times when we do fall into this trap where we trust in things, we trust in stuff, more than we trust in God. That's kind of the temptation of living in a nation that is really wealthy. Let's be honest with ourselves. We're rich. We don't always feel like it because sometimes we compare ourselves to others. You and I, were wealthy. We turn on the hot water, it comes out right into our shower. We don't have to go anywhere to get it. And it's clean. We can drink as much water as we want. Truthfully, with my credit card, credit rating... I can go buy really whatever I want slash need, of course, need in quotation marks. I could go buy a new car. I don't know if I'd be able to afford it for very long, but I could go purchase one. I could go buy new clothes right now and I wouldn't be completely hurting for it. I could find a way to make it work, right? I have so much. Yet when something goes wrong, what do I do? I worry, right? Because I think I have to have that. My car starts sputtering. Oh no, I need my car. I have to have that car. Oh no, my water heater went out. I have to have it, right? We see a lot of things that we have to have and we start trusting in things. Now, I'm not saying go sell your house, sell your car and shame on you for having what you have. But what I am saying is it's easier to trust in things. It's easier to trust in money. And while we're at it, for these Pharisees, it was also easy to trust in their heritage. See, that's what's going to be the shocker here is that these individuals, these Pharisees, this Pharisee, I should say it's singular, uh, who was in Hades, he looks up and he sees Father Abraham, right? And he calls him that Father Abraham. This individual is of the faith. And he sees Father Abraham way up there, but he can't join him. See, this individual thought he had it made probably, but instead the one who is up there is the poor one. 
But this shows you how he pictures the relationships that he has with the people on earth. Please send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. See, he thinks Lazarus is there to serve him. That's how he views the other people. Of course, Father Abraham says it's not possible. A great chasm can't do that. He says, fine, send Lazarus then to go tell my people so that they don't find themselves in this place of torment either. Save them. Again, send Lazarus to serve me. But see, here's the kicker, right? This is the kicker. Father Abraham says, but if someone was to go to them from the dead, they won't repent. For they have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to them. They wouldn't believe even if someone would rise from the dead. Which is very interesting because we know someone in uh, chapter or in John, excuse me, named Lazarus, who is raised from the dead, and the people don't believe. And then, of course, we have the Savior, Jesus himself, who they are wanting to kill. They will crucify him. He will be buried, and he will be raised from the dead. And what are people going to do? Are they going to believe or not? See, really what we find in uh, this section here, this chapter, is that these, uh, these topics of, of money and stewardship with the dishonest manager, as well as the rich man and Lazarus, it's really for the Pharisees to be thinking about what it is that they're putting their faith in. But of course, it's not just for the Pharisees, right? Because we know in our hearts, we have those times of trusting in other things too. So with Jesus coming back, this is the Advent season, right? We know he's coming for us again, thankfully. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? Are you putting the, your faith in the temporal things of this world? Or are you trusting in the one who is the giver of all good things? Are you trusting that he is going to supply your every need as you are giving, as you are serving other individuals, right? Well, thankfully, we know that our God is a gracious God, and he is the one that we are serving. And we're thankful that it's not about our heritage. It's not about what we do. We're thankful that it has to do with his grace, that he is a merciful God who is willing to love us and accept us and come back for us. So I pray that that in some way uh, helps you and maybe even challenges you uh, during this season where we're surrounded by so much stuff, uh, giving gifts and getting gifts, uh, that we always place our hope in the one who is coming for us, the good giver. All right, I look forward to seeing everybody tomorrow as we are in chapter 17. Uh, have a great rest of the day.